0: back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Farida Naburema, a social activist and writer who since being a teenager has been a fearless advocate for democracy and human rights in her native Togo. I met Farida recently at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway and was intrigued by her story, her work, and the ways in which she's been educating her followers and community about the benefits of Bitcoin. This conversation was not only illuminating with regards to the nature and degree of oppression in Togo and elsewhere, but it also left me incredibly impressed by the courage, conviction, and wisdom of this young woman and grateful for her work in the cause for freedom. Enjoy. There we go. Farida, how are you? Thanks for joining me.
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me, John.
0: So it was an absolute pleasure to get to know you and speak with you uh, at the Oslo Freedom Forum a couple weeks ago in, in Oslo. And then, of course, we had a very special retreat with about, uh, I think, 30 other people uh, where we got to do some, some fun hikes and some really nice dinners and uh, got to know each other better and hear each other's stories. And uh, I thought it would be really cool given your incredible story and also the work you've been doing and your familiarity with Bitcoin to you know come on the show and, and have a discussion. Because I think uh, a lot of people, especially in North America and Western Europe, see Bitcoin through one mostly similar lens. And uh, it certainly opened my eyes at the Freedom Forum and through stories like yours, that there's multiple lenses to be seeing Bitcoin through. And um, I was kind of blown away about Around what was happening in those other lenses, so perhaps to get things uh, started off, um, perhaps you can introduce yourself to everybody and then we'll we'll get rolling from there. Thank
1: you John. Um, it, it was It was really um, a great experience to be in Oslo with um, freedom fighters and uh, great developers in the the Bitcoin sector and Bitcoin promoters from all over the world, including yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm an activist, human rights and democracy activist from Togo. I lead an organization called the Togolese Civil League. Um, Togo is a country located in West Africa, uh, a French speaking nation of eight million people that is ruled by an autocracy. Our country has been ruled by the oldest military regime on the African continent. The same family has been in power for 55 years. First, it was the son, then the father, now it's the son. Um, and I became an activist um, about two decades ago, when I was 13 years old, um, following the arrest of my father, who himself uh, has been an activist his whole life. Um, and since then, um, I have been initiating uh, efforts along um, order Togolese citizens to demand um, democracy, um, rule of law, and to demand accountability for the atrocities that are committed in our countries. Um, in 2011, I co-launched a movement called the former school movement in Togo, which eventually became a slogan of resistance, uh, civil resistance in my country. Togo.
0: And so, you know, I, I know your, your father was an activist as well, but what was it like growing up with, you know, because many of us have relatively stable, uh, You know, for lack of a better term, boring upbringings. You know, we grow up on a maybe a suburban neighborhood, and all the normal stuff is there. But you grew up in an environment where one, your your father was extremely committed to a certain cause, and I have to imagine that that would have been, you know, that would have had some kind of impact on you. But also the 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 consequences of him being so committed to that cause would have been obviously very apparent to you in your upbringing as well. So what what was it like? growing up as a child of someone who was such a committed activist. And what was he in particular focused on when you were growing up?
1: Um, I will say that the first decade of my life, I had no idea what activism is and that my father was an activist and I didn't even know he ever spent time in prison. I just recalled memories of my early childhood of soldiers coming to a house, but I never really was able to pinpoint In what contest this happened? So, I would say that I had a pretty normal um, early childhood. Um, And it wasn't until 2003 when I was 13 and my father didn't return home one night. The following morning, soldiers invaded our house and started searching everything, um, ransacking the whole house, including the children's room. That made me realize that there was a problem going on. And eventually I started following my dad to his political meetings. Um, In the beginning, it was a response out of fear. As a kid, I felt like I needed to be there to protect my dad. Um, And then eventually he realized that warning me against coming to those meetings wouldn't stop me. And then he just allowed me to to go with him. And then I I started learning more and having one-on-one sessions with him, understanding the history of Togo, um, with him recounting his experience in prison uh, and there were very horrific stories. Horrific stories of his ke- his, his comrades and friends getting killed, um, of him um, escaping an assassination attempt and um, being sh- the car he was in being shot at and one of his friends in the car uh, hit by a bullet and killed, um, of him having one of his friends die in his hands in prison, Um, of women, young women who got arrested and also tortured like my dad because their spouses were suspected of being in the opposition, Um, of young children who were arrested um, very arbitrarily uh, simply because they were in the wrong place in the wrong time and they ended up spending a decade in prison uh, without trial um, just because the soldiers could do that. So um, the more I ended up learning about the atrocities that the regime in Togo committed, the more revolted I became as a young person. The more angry I was and the more, the more determined I was to also fight for that same justice. And I would like to um, add that my father himself uh, had an activist dad. My grandfather was an activist. Um, he spent many years in prison under the French colonial era. And when after our independence in 1960 the French government sent uh, former soldiers of the colonial army to kill our uh, elected president Sivanus Olympio they went back and rearrested all the independence activists following that coup committed by the dictator that ended up ruling Togo for 38 years my, that my grandfather went back to jail again when his kids were very young um, as a result of this um, my my dad himself grew up in an atmosphere of, of witnessing his father being abused, um, and that led him to become an activist. And I think it was just a normal course for myself, uh, witnessing the same and wanting to to do something to make things um, different. I wouldn't say that my my childhood um, as being the daughter of an activist was any particular, except that um, I I witnessed a lot of. Meetings and I was in first hand in contact with some extreme brutal stories that revolted me uh, in in a in a in a very specific way. And I remember when I became very public about my activism in the early two thousand and tens, and I was I was a twenty year old girl active and I launched a movement. Um, A lot of the feedback that I was receiving from Togolese people, both in the diaspora and the country, was that I was too naive and I wasn't aware of the danger of this regime. I was being stupid by daring uh, openly uh, uh, um, address the regime and demand uh, change the way I was doing it because most of the activists back in the days will operate in, um, in, in such ways that their identities wouldn't be known. Or if they were in public, if their identities were known, they were more moderate in the the things they will say or what they will request from the government. And and I recall a conversation in which um, someone told me, You have no idea the kind of people you're joking with. These are people who arrest citizens, kill them, and dump their bodies in the sea. These are people who uh, torture citizens to death. You have no idea what they could do to you. And I replied to the person and I gave him. A few examples of people the, the detailed stories of torture in prison such as wrapping electrical cords on women's breasts and men's genitalia to torture them in prison um, such as inserting uh, uh, bottles um, inside um, people's private parts to, to rape and violate them when I counted such uh, stories that I have been very close with um, uh, because my dad was an activist and those happened to him and his friends and many others. Um, it, it made, I told him that I am not an activist because I don't understand how dangerous it is to be an activist in Togo. I am an activist exactly because I know how cruel that regime could be. So it is not the cruelty that is scaring me it is the cruelty that is rather revolting me. And after that, the guy understood where I was coming from. And he respected my, my experience and he respected um, my decision to, to do what I was doing, even though this could have enormous and dangerous and devastating consequences on me. Because at first they thought, well, she's not, she doesn't know what she's doing. But then she real- they eventually realized that I knew exactly what I was doing. And I, w- I wanted to be an activist because I felt like at some points, the cycle of violence has to be stopped. And we needed some people to be brave enough to fight for it to stop so that our children and their children don't end up growing up in the same level of fear that we grew up in.
0: Mm. Wow. I have a lot of, a <laughs> lot of questions about that, but the, the, you know, I find it, uh interesting that as you said you started going to you know activist uh meetings and meetups and rallies and stuff with your father cuz you wanted to make sure he was okay you know to to protect him when you were a, a young teenager or something it's a very sweet sentiment but i mean going even going back to your grandfather who was involved in this let's say broadly speaking or is it fair for me to say broadly speaking the cause for freedom is that is yeah. that the primary motivator of your, your father, your grandfather, and yourself?
1: It is absolutely the primary motivator. And, absolutely.
0: And and where do you think this came from in in your grandfather? And, and just for a bit of context, I'll explain the question a bit. A lot of people, and particularly in the Western world, and this is, of course, my assessment, it may not necessarily be true, but this is my perspective, that a lot of people take freedom for granted, um, perhaps because they've had... A relatively large amount of it compared to other places in the world and therefore they've kind of uh, become somewhat complacent about it and as a result perhaps they're not as vigilant about it but also not as appreciative about it and i think that's a very that's a dangerous and a slippery slope that we should try to avoid um, but in places where perhaps there's been a relative deficiency of it which may be the case in your grandfather's togo let's say mm-hmm. what was it that made him aspire toward more freedom like did you ever talk with him or your father about where the kind of genesis of the recognition of the importance of of freedom came from and why it was so why it burned so you know brightly within them
1: of course i even i even wrote an article about it uh, on my blog uh, titled the story of my grandfather's resistance in which i detailed um, how he became an activist himself. And what led him to that? Because very little is told in Togo about the pre-independence era activists. We only focus on those who came following the official creation of our state, our independent state um, in 1916. So my grandfather uh, came from this minority ethnic group in Northern Togo um, called the Chaco group. Um, And his family was a family of uh, uh, farmers and herders, and also uh, hunters. Um, And during the colonial era, when the French decided to colonize Togo, they reintroduced slavery, which they um, were careful enough to call forced labor instead of slavery. Because officially slavery was abolished in the West, but unofficially, they needed to continue to enjoy free labor. So they call it free labor, forced labor. So um, they will require from uh, um, farming communities in the north of Togo to give them a certain amount of their crops each year. And the demands were growing up, uh, were growing more and more to a point where people were required of releasing up to two thirds of their crops to the French government whenever the farm. And these are low scale farmers at a time where there was not a single form of modernization of agriculture. And the, the, the amount of crops they were giving to the French government was literally leaving them unable to feed themselves and, and their families. So um, many of these farmers decided that they will stop farming if that would be the case. And that was the case of my grandfather himself. My grandfather stopped farming and he became a full-time hunter because um, it was harder for them to go after hunters for uh, their, their resources. And then um, eventually the, the French um, administration organized an event Uh, in the community, calling on all the community members to attend a celebration of France um, National Independence Day, Revolution Day, on January 14. And my grandfather, being in a group of local um, artists, was asked to perform uh, on that day and he refused. He said there is no way he will perform for those people that are starving them and their families and are beating them and mutilating them because they wouldn't provide them with what they were asking for. So as a result of that, the, the French administration, uh, which was represented then by the local um, chief, had my grandfather arrested for uh, disobedience and he was tied to a tree with a rope like an animal. And that punishment in our community is a very insulting com- punishment because you tie your horses and your goats and your cattle to a tree, but tying on a human through the neck to a tree was extremely dehumanizing. It was a very humiliating experience for my grandfather, and they, they let him there under the tree for days. Eventually, there was a local teacher in that community who came from the majority ethnic group in the South, the Owe people, and he was so angry about what the treatment my, my grandfather witnessed. And he complained to the French administration. And since he was educated, he wrote as well to the leaders of the independence movement in the South to inform them about how people were being treated up in the north in the villages by the French administration as a result of his intervention my grandfather was released and my grandfather felt very grateful to him and he went to him to thank him and the guy asked my my, my the guy my, my grandfather asked how he could repay him for his kindness because he didn't have to put himself on the line to save and and, and plead for him and the guy said the only way he could repay my grandfather, my grandfather could repay his kindness, is to enroll his children in school. You know, back in the days, many of the locals would refuse to enroll their children in the colonial schools because they were convinced that the, their kids would be brainwashed. Um, and mm. people who were literally enslaving them couldn't want any good thing for their children. So they, re- they, they were refusing categorically to send their children to school. So my grandfather resisted. At first, he's like, there's no way I can allow these people to teach my children. I don't think they have any values that they can teach my children. Um, But the teacher reassured him by saying, they are not the one teaching. I'm the teacher in the school. And there are many other teachers that are Togolese and Black like myself. Do you think that I can corrupt your children's mind? And the guy said, no. Um, And the teacher, my, my grandfather said, okay, um, just because you made the request, I will allow you to, pick, to take one of my kids to school, but I'm going to give you the most useless of my children, the one who can not farm, who can not hunt, who is physically weak, weak and who is always sick. That way, you know, um, in case it doesn't go well, I wouldn't end up sacrificing my, the, the most healthy of my kids. And the irony of the matter is that that kid ended up being my dad. And my dad was the first in my (laughs) grandfather's children who went to school by accident. And my dad recalled that the first day he was going to school, his whole siblings were begging my grandfather and crying to not let him go because they thought it was the worst punishment ever for him to go to school. Um, But it brought my dad and his father and his uncles extremely close because every day in the evening, Whenever he returned from school, they will gather and ask my dad to teach them exactly what he was being taught in school. They, wanted to, they were curious to know what they were being taught in school. And that led to the creation of a small literacy program that my dad ended up running to teach those old people how to read and write. Um, and what they were discussing in school, in history, in geography, and it went on for years. My grandfather, as an act of um, gratefulness, decided to join the independence movements that that teacher told him about. Um, and when he was aware of the struggle people were leading in the, st- in the south demand independence, he started mobilizing people from his community. When the French found out about it, they arrested him and put him in jail for two years. When he came out, he went back to it and he was banned from using any colonial services. As a result of this, one of his children was sick and was denied medical treatment because they considered hospitals to be the benefits of colonialism. Um, And my uncle died as a result of that. My grandfather and his group of activists were not allowed to use the train and this wasn't just him it was entirely in the whole of togo anybody who is identified as being close to the independence leaders were banned from using the train and or any other public trans- transportation my grandfather's village is about 350 miles from what will become the capital city but he and his colleagues will walk from their village to the capital city just to go and donate the money they have raised for the independence movement. And they did that for years. They went by foot and it would take them weeks to go and come back because uh, they will stop on the way to rest, wow. hunt and eat. So independence meant a lot for them because they really believed that once they are free, their children wouldn't suffer the humiliations and the abuse that they suffered. And the rest is history because my dad ended up um, following in the same footstep.
0: Eh, that's an incredible story. Um, what, what do you feel is your responsibility or role in what seems to be kind of a, a family endeavor in attempting to fight for freedom and independence and fairness in Togo. I mean, you, you've obviously taken up the family mantle to some degree, (laughs) you know, when did it dawn on you that that was going to be effectively, you know, your life's work or your primary calling as well?
1: I believe it started in 2005 when I was 15 and the dictator Eyadema Yassimbe died. Eyadema Yasimbe ruled Togo for 38 years and he was the first president that I knew grew up, growing up. And when Eyadema was alive, it was terror. Nobody had the right to say Eyadema's name in public. You can get arrested for that. People will call him by all sorts of nicknames. And I became very addicted to Harry Potter at the same, in the same period because um, I, I was of the Harry Potter generation, like many millennials. And the first time that I, I discovered about Harry Potter was after the first movie came out on Harry Potter 1. Then I went on and looked for the books and started reading. The only reason why I was interested in Harry Potter was because of Lord Voldemort. Why? Because what Voldemort was in every single way similar to Eyadema in Togo. Nobody says his name. He's that scary. Um, When Eyadema was president, we had military patrols everywhere in Togo. There was a curfew by seven because he was constantly paranoid that somebody would topple him. So the country was a police state. By 7 p.m. you don't leave your house if you do you may end up dead or severely beaten. One of my cousins was so beaten that he ended up becoming um, mentally ill after that and he never recovered. Um, and many others just died. When Yadema was president, there were some rituals that we had to observe as Togolese children and citizens. One of them is that all of the public school kids have to chant and dance for him. So on Wednesday afternoons, we don't go to school. We go and train on choreographies, wearing T-shirts and clothing with the president's picture on it, making songs to thank him for being the good father of the nation, for feeding us and for ensuring we are happy and singing how Togo is the happiest nation on the planet. And every morning we have to line up from the presidency to his house to clap for him when he's going to work. And when he's going back home, we have to line up again to clap for him. When he's traveling, we line up from the presidency to the airport to say goodbye, to wave goodbye at him. When he returns from a state travel, we have to line up from the airport to the presidency to welcome him and chant for him. It was um, a country where the only God that could exist was Iadema or no one else. To go, there were spies everywhere, spies in classrooms, spies in bars, spies in restaurants, in taxes, and to the point where people were not even comfortable discussing anything politics, even in the comfort of their house. All political meetings were happening in streets, com- complete secrecy. And it wasn't until um, after my dad was arrested that I realized that he was even into political meetings because as a kid, he would send me to his comrades and say, go and tell this person that we are meeting at this place today and go and tell this person that we're meeting at this place today. So I was the messenger. And sometimes in one day I can deliver the message to, to two dozen people. And I had no idea what those meetings were about. I was the kid for me, it was just meetings, but it wasn't until he was arrested at the next day, I found out that dad didn't come back from his meeting last night, that I realized there was a problem. Then I found out what those meetings were about. And since I always knew the location when he was released and started going back, after telling people and after he leaves, I followed him as well um, and meet, meet him there. So in 2005, when Yadema died, we were happy. It's sad to say that people are happy that the president died, but after 38 years, it's always way. Extremely happy, and we thought this would be the beginning of change. But the same night, the night, the, the following night, the son did a coup and was appointed president by the army. Then he was sanctioned by the international community and rushed elections two months later. And that election was a bloodbath. They massacred over one thousand people within a couple of days. And, you know, Togo, was a country of 5 million people there. It's like killing 30,000 Americans on a day of election because they want democracy. Just to tell you how serious it was. That moment, I felt so powerless. I felt so robbed. I was so angry. And I remember asking my dad, watching TV at home, how could they get away with this? And my dad was just staring. He couldn't say a word. A word. He couldn't say a word. And that was a moment that I became fully determined that this struggle, I will fight it till the end and I will not rest until fall leaves power. And that led me to creating the former school movement. That was the, the moment, 2005. But it wasn't, it wasn't a, a choice based on I want to follow my dad or I'm carrying a family legacy. No, because nobody in the family was interested in us being activists. My dad was ostracized by his family and I am ostracized by my entire family and my siblings. It's been decades that I haven't talked or seen most of them because they are terrified and they don't want to have anything to do with me. It was a choice of, it's either you choose politics or you choose the family. But for me, You don't choose politics. You don't choose a struggle. The struggle chooses you. It's not about saying, I want to do this. It's about saying, I have to do this. Um, And it has been a very difficult path, but it was never, it's not like art or music, or I don't know, a career where you take it with so much pride and say, oh, my father was a freedom fighter. My grandfather was a freedom fighter. I'm going to be a freedom fighter. I honestly hope my children don't end up becoming freedom fighters because I really hope we can achieve that freedom before they get there. Hmm.
0: I, I want to pick up that thread or that story in a, in a moment, but just to, to go back a little bit, you know, in your grandfather's era, they were fighting for independence, right? That was the right. the cause. Right. And then what was it, did you? I'm sure you heard stories, but what was it like for them, for those people that were advocating for independence at that time to have gotten it? And then, but what they got in return was a brutal dictatorship. So one, I mean, I know this is a very, probably a difficult question to answer, but were, was the dictatorship even worse than the colonial era? Or what, what was the sentiments in terms of uh, the energy behind the movement once something that they had been fighting for had seemed to have been achieved only to be, uh, you know, ripped out from under them or, you know, completely, the the actuality be completely different to what they were hoping?
1: That's a great question because um, it's going to help us better understand the situation and the reality of Togo. We cannot um, detach the dictatorship in Togo from the colonialism. The colonial regime the dictatorial regime of Togo is a continuation of the colonial regime, and let me tell you why. When the Togolese started fighting and demanding independence, their independence leader was arrested in 1954 and denied the, all his civic rights. He could neither vote or run for office because at the time the French were organizing local elections. To oversee local roles, even though the colonial administration kept all the important um, um, sectors such as defense, economy, finance, uh, uh, um, etc. Still, when the Togolese did a referendum in 1958, following years of struggle and protest and uh, uh, petitioning the UN. And the one that referendum by 97% saying no to colonialism, they decided that Olympia will be their president, even though he didn't even run for office. Olympia was arrested for what? He was arrested simply because the French accused him of possessing British pounds. Because in the colonial era, it was illegal to own a currency of another colonial power. So you cannot be Togolese and use a British pound or a US dollar, you can can go to jail for that. So Olympio couldn't run for office simply because he had British pound. And he had British pound because he used to be the Africa Director General of Unilever, which is a British company. Eventually, when Olympio became president, and at the time he was one of the most educated presidents in Africa, he studied at the London School of Economics, and then he has a degree from American University. When Olympio became president, he wanted to create an independent currency for Togo. Why? Because the French created a currency called the CFA, which is completely copied from the Nazi currency that the Hitler administration created during World War II and imposed on all the countries that were controlled by the Nazi government. So the CFA currency has a very specific model. It requires every single nation in West Africa, in Francophone Africa, to deposit 60% of their national gold reserves in the Bank of France. Then they must deposit another 15% to counter and prevent inflation and guarantee what they call the convertibility of that currency. The currency was pegged to the French franc And eventually, when the EU was created, it became pegged to the EU. The value is static. Why? Because of those 15% reserves they have extra. As a result of this, the French created what they call a colonial pact, which all the nations that were French colonies were required to sign. The pact says we must remain in CFA zone. The pact says the French government has the priority of of purchase of all our natural resources. So Togo produces phosphates, Niger produces uranium, Mali produces gold, Cote d'Ivoire produces cocoa, uh, um, Guinea produces bauxite, Congo produces oil. We cannot choose voluntarily to sell our natural resources to let's say Germany or Canada or the U.S. We must sell it to the French companies first. And it's only after the French companies refuse the purchase that we can sell it to another country. The colonial pact also requires us to only purchase, our government could only procure from French companies. As a result, our nations are the only one in the world where the government procures French brand cars, such as Peugeot, Renault, Citroën. We are the only consumers of that the main consumers of that. Our government told today don't order Japanese cars or American cars or German cars, they can't. Then they have what they call a defense accord, which actually gives the French the right to intervene militarily anytime there is what they call a security problem. But technically the security problem is is not a security problem affecting the people, but a security problem affecting the interests of the French government. Based on that, the French have, on many occasions, invaded multiple of those countries on the basis of their businesses being in trouble or their security being jeopardized. The colonial pact was required from all the Francophone countries, but the Togolese president refused to sign on one basis. Togo was not a French colony in the first place. Togo was a German colony, and after World War I, when Germany lost the war, the League of the Nations, which became the United Nations, decided to place Togo under the mandates of France and Britain. One third of Togo was given to the British, which became the British Togoland, and when the Gold Coast chose independence, it rallied the Gold Coast to form modern-day Ghana. And the other two thirds of Togo, which is French Togoland, is the Togo we have today. So Togo was under a special mandate. So Togo said, We are not your colony. We would not sign this pact in the first place. And two years after our independence, Olympio introduced a bill at the parliament requesting the creation of the Togolese franc. That was December 12, 1962. Exactly 31 days later. On January 13, 1963, the French government sent soldiers, Togolese soldiers recruited in the French colonial army to the house of Olympio to assassinate him. That was the very first military coup in Africa, the very first time a president was killed in independent Africa. Those military eventually seized power and they were maintained in power by the government of France. Togo did not and never had an army before then. Olympio chose that Togo would be a neutral state, and Togo was even nicknamed the Switzerland of Africa, because we chose to be a neutral state. But the French government created the army after the assassination of Olympio. And all the soldiers in that army were the soldiers they recruited and enrolled actually by force in the colonial army to fight World War II and to fight other wars in Vietnam. Sadly and ironically, my mom's dad on the other side was also a soldier in the colonial army. And men, they were brutal. They were cruel. They were trained to be killers because they were serving the interests of the colonial empire. Eyademan Simbe, that soldier who became president and ruled for 38 years, whose son is now president of Togo, was a complete illiterate. He couldn't even spell his name when he became president. But the French didn't care. They just wanted somebody there who will keep the people in check so that they can continue looting our resources and imposing a currency that is worth nothing. Since we have used that currency, the French currency, it has lost more than 200% of its value. It has been devaluated on many occasions, and this is the main reason why our citizens are poor. We are paid in a currency that is worth absolutely nothing. It takes 650 CFA to obtain $1, and more than 60% of Togolese citizens don't even live on $20 a day. This should tell you how cruel the reality is. Because our farmers, who represent the majority of our population, who are over 60% of our population, they are paid in a currency that is not only weak in respect to the euro, but a currency that can be devaluated at any time. Until today, our government have no say in that. And every single time that an African leader tried to challenge the CFA currency, they were assassinated or removed by coup. This was the case of Thomas Sankara in neighborhood country Burkina Faso. It was the case of Modibo Keita in Mali. It was the case of uh, 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 Marien Guambi in Congo and many other leaders who ever tried to change the things. So the dictatorship we have in Togo wouldn't have been there in the first place if the French didn't give them the guns and the resources and sent them after our elected president to kill him. Until then, the French government is the main donor of the Togolese army. All our military elites are trained by France and the French government continue to maintain a military base in our country. So we don't, we, we, our independence was very short-lived. And this is the reason why when Olympia was killed, they sent those soldiers to arrest all the independence activists and put them in prison for years. Because they knew that if they didn't do that, they would reorganize again and chase them out. And they wanted to avoid that. And unfortunately, the people of Togo have been paying the price of that colonialism for the past five decades.
0: It's so crazy to me that you know these sorts of behaviors these sorts of relationships between the what is thought to be former colonial powers that their reach and influence and control is still so pervasive in so many parts mm-hmm. of the world particularly the quote-unquote global south mm-hmm. you know and, and it's made even worse by the fact that the leaders of these countries be it france the us mm-hmm. britain you know and others they espouse such virtues, you know, like, you know, the, the public image of, of these countries and these, these leaders, you know, they attach themselves to these, you know, social justice and virtuous movements and, you know, things that permeate the culture when beneath the surface, this is how they continue to operate in, in this day and age, in so many places of the world that put so many people in such an unfair and egregious and abusive situation, uh, when they could, they could easily stop it or, and, and, you know, there are complex situations, so maybe they couldn't stop the situation, but they could easily stop making it worse. They could easily stop exerting such undue control and influence in these places and allow for greater self-determination and freedom, but they don't, you know, because I guess they're, they want the control and they want the, the interest and the wealth to be derived from maintaining that level of control.
1: Yes. Um, you know, Last year, we had an historic moment when a French business mogul, probably the richest man in France, François-Vincent Bolloré. Vincent Bolloré was actually indicted in a corruption scandal for corrupting the government of Togo. So what happened was that he offered his services to help the government of Togo fraud the presidential elections. And as a result of this, he was granted the control of our national port for 30 years. And the funny thing is that the French government's, um, the French courts sentenced him to paying $12 million in reparation. But those 12 million euros, actually, not dollars, were paid to the French government. So technically, we, the people of Togo, are the ones that are robbed. And (laughs) it's still the French government that receives the compensation (laughs) for the robbery. But this has been the case in almost all of those dictatorships. When you look at the 17 countries that France has colonized in Africa, 14 out of those 17 are ruled by authoritarian regimes that have been in power for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And they have the full support of the French government. And they have the full support of the French businesses. It is actually the French multinational corporations that wants them to be there. Why? Because through that corruption, they allow those leaders to stay in power and to loot the little resources that are left. And they can buy our natural resources at chicken prices. This is how they continue to maintain themselves as a world power. Because technically, without those resources, France is a broke country. France will be even poorer than Portugal or Greece today because the French government doesn't have any natural resources. Unlike Norway, that has some oil, or other Western countries that have some natural resources, France has zero natural resources. The uranium that French electricity depends by over 70% on uranium, and that uranium comes from Niger. The, the fuel they use. They, depend, they export it from Gabon, Chad, Congo, technically for free, because they pay less than 2% of what other nations would have paid to get it legally. So technically, we are run by a colonial mafia that has evolved and has gained a lot of strength and became pervasive over these years. And we have a semblance of republics in our countries, but those republics are useless because whenever we have elections, the army will just go and steal the ballots and declare whoever they want as the winner and it's still the same person for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So it's, um, it's a very difficult position because activists like ourselves, we are fighting not just a regime in our country, but we are fighting mm. a colonial establishment that is even more powerful and more uh uh uh, um difficult to uproot than the dictatorships in our countries
0: right so it's almost like you know you could be successful in in enacting or creating some kind of change internally but if the you know the puppet master pulling the strings or the financial and military support that's propping these corrupt regimes up is not changed then it's kind of, it's a wasted effort in some that's, in some sense, you know, or at right. least it can't be maintained very long. That's right. You know, I, I'm going to continue to come back to the thread on this story, but this is probably a good time to bring Bitcoin into the picture because I've heard you describe Bitcoin as the currency of decolonization. And that's, I'd never heard it put that way before. Of course, I, I, For a long time have seen the utility of bitcoin in granting people more financial and other forms of sovereignty Mm -hmm. and it also is probably the case i think a lot of us see the benefit in in a money like bitcoin helping to restrain the size of governments even in the quote-unquote western or or developed worlds you know because governments have become extremely large and bloated and 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 probably and with you know with excess power and i think a lot of us would like to see them shrink to a certain degree and a money that they can't inflate when they can't surreptitiously steal the wealth of the the money holders that certainly puts a restraint on on the money they're able to spend but maybe you could just you could um describe to me what you mean by the currency of decolonization and how you've been using it promoting it or the people in togo have been leveraging it for that purpose
1: thank you John. When you look at Bitcoin in the first place, it's a very powerful currency for people like myself that were born and raised um, and grew up in a country that doesn't have its own currency. The CFA currency that we use in Togo and in, in 14 African countries was created specifically with the objective of colonizing us. It was created by the colonizers to ensure that they continue to control our monetary policies. Our money is not only printed in France, but 80% of our gold is in the Bank of France just so that we can keep using that money. So, technically, we are renting our own money from France and we are paying them for, for renting us our own money. That money was created to colonize, and that money is used for colonization. Each time that the government of France has devaluated our currency, the devaluation made us poorer, but it made them richer because now they can buy our products at an even cheaper rate. They just woke up one morning on many occasions and will just say, the currency has lost 50% of its value. And if you are worth $10,000 today, you wake up being worth $5,000. Just like that. And for people that have nothing in the first place, that is a lot. For people that barely have $50 savings and that's their entire family savings, it is a lot. When it comes to the Bitcoin, the value is determined by a global market, not by a government, not by an institution, not by a colonial power, not by a president who just wakes up and says, I'm going to print 20 million more Bitcoins. It is impossible because the Bitcoin is capped. It's immutable. In addition to that, the Bitcoin is a currency that gives us, for the first time, the right to belong on the global financial market. Why? The CFA currency cannot be converted to any other currency but the euro on which it is pegged, and it is done on purpose. We pay 15% to guarantee that convertibility. So each time we convert our money to euro, we lose 15% by just doing that. When it comes to the Bitcoin, it is a a currency of humanity. That's what I call it. It was not created for Americans or the British or the Japanese or, or the Nigerians or the Ethiopians. It was created for humanity. So regardless of your background, of your ethnicity, of your race, or even of the amount of wealth you have or you don't, you can use the Bitcoin. But in a country like mine, from the colonial time, as I mentioned earlier, it was illegal to own foreign currencies. Can you imagine that even till today, it's still illegal to own more than a certain amount of foreign currencies in our country? So if I have $5,000 cash, the government can have the legal right to arrest me for this because it's a crime. The states regulate how much foreign currency you can have because they want everybody to keep their money in the local currency so that they can not only control it and steal from it, but they can just wake up one day and change its value. And with the Bitcoin, for the first time, we have a safety layer of protection against our own government. So this is why I call Bitcoin the currency of decolonization, because it is the first time that we have a currency that literally cuts us from those colonial ties.
0: I have so so many questions about this, but I guess the first that comes to mind is how can people in Togo acquire Bitcoin and what is the current regime's stance on bitcoin
1: the current regime stance on bitcoin in togo is basically the same as many m- the majority of the countries in the world it's like they don't mention it they don't say anything about it there's no regulations against or in favor it's it's neg- it's neither legal nor illegal but the reality is people didn't demand or needed the government approval to start using Bitcoin in the first place. They started using Bitcoin because it was solving a lot of their problems. For many people in the West, Bitcoin is a mean of speculation. But for people from the global South, especially from a country like Togo, Bitcoin is more than speculation. In fact, many don't even have the resources to speculate. They just use it as a mean of exchange. There are a few examples that I will give you, for example. There's a lot of trade that happens in interest states between our countries. In fact, the majority of the trade and the commerce happening in Africa is between African nations. You, you are in Togo, before you can buy anything in Ghana, you have to convert that money to the Ghanaian currency. So because our money can't be directly converted to the Ghanaian currency, you have to use your money to buy euros. Today, there are traders who will do it, but they do it at a rate that disfavor us. However, m- legally, you're supposed to buy euros, then use euros to buy CDs. So in the process, you, we can lose up to 20% of the value of our money. So you may be wanting to buy something that costs $1,000, but end up spending $1,200 uh, 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 um, to acquire it. It makes trades more difficult, painful, and expensive. That's one solution that Bitcoin is providing for peer-to-peer exchanges that people don't even rely on the state's currencies anymore because those currencies have their own issues with conversion, but it also has their own issues with inflation. When you look at the Ghanaian cities, for example, since January, it has lost over 30% of its value. So when people are crying about Bitcoin volatility, we actually have currencies in Africa that are more volatile than the Bitcoin. So for some people, they will take Bitcoin any day, any time over their local currency. In addition to that, you have one problem that Bitcoin solves is access to people who are unbanked. 70% of our people in Togo and many other countries in Africa don't have bank accounts. And I recall when I mentioned this statistic once in a conversation abroad, the person asked me, Why can't they have bank accounts? And I said, because the majority of our population don't even have IDs. And the person asked, why can't they have IDs? And I said, because the vast majority of our population don't even have birth certificates. You know, it's uh, an (laughs) infrastructural gap that has been there for decades that can just be closed for many years. So what Africans started using as a means of banking is their telephone The same way people used to buy scratch cards and top up their telephone crates so that they can call people and they'll buy $10 from T-Mobile or AT&T or Verizon. We buy money on our phone devices and we pay for goods and services using the money on our phone devices. So mobile banking has been the new banking in Africa for the past 10 years plus. And there are over 60% of people that are using mobile banks. Because they're not banks. They don't ask you for your, for your IDs. They don't ask you for anything. They just, you just buy money on your telephone number and uh, I ask for your number and I send it to you. That's just the way it works. So technically, Bitcoin ought to act to some extent like a mobile banking. Even though you don't just have to buy it on your mobile phone, you can buy it on many other, many other ways, but it solves the problem of people who are unbanked. And those People need services like this because they have been excluded completely from the financial system simply because they don't have bank accounts. And many have no interest in having bank accounts because they don't want to trust the government with their money. They don't trust them. In my country, when people have money, they don't keep it in the bank. They buy land. Even though we have a lot of land litigation issues, they still feel safer keeping their money in form of land than just keeping it with the government. But today, people are realizing that they, don't, they could do something else, not just buy land. They could also buy Bitcoin. And people are doing that. Togo has yeah. the second highest Bitcoin adoption rate in Africa per capita. Um, really? From the latest chain analysis uh, uh, publication in 2021. So to tell you that people did not wait for permission. They just started using it because they had issues and Bitcoin was solving it.
0: And the the kind of foreign currency uh, controls or limits at the moment, the government isn't attempting to enforce them on Bitcoin. Like for you know, because as it becomes more popular and they begin to notice that people are using it in this way, to this point, they're not yet cracking down. Is that right?
1: They are not yet cracking down, and I I feel like they are not interested in trying that yet because it will create a a huge uproar. And for now they are trying to avoid upsetting people even more than they already are.
0: (laughs) You know, one of the, there's so many amazing uh, things about Bitcoin and so many different ways that it helps resolve issues that people are encountering. But, you know, we we had a guest on the show a while back now, Paul Etoy, and one of the companies that, uh, he has started. It's called Stackwork, and I'll, I'll probably oversimplify. But basically, because of the the functionality brought to Bitcoin by the Lightning Network, what his company does, because as you say, I mean, Bitcoin allows people to access a global market, not only to access banking, you know, you know, an economic, a monetary system no matter where they are, just with a mobile phone and an internet connection, but access a a budding global market of goods and, uh, you know, of goods and services. And what it allows them to do is to plug into that. And so what, Mm -hmm. what his company does is basically it, it, it allows people to do fairly, you know, menial or basic tasks that don't Mm -hmm. require like, you know, let's say, um, uh, you know, sophisticated education. So it's things related to like data categorization and things for artificial intelligence and that kind of stuff. And they do these works on their smartphone and then they're mm-hmm. paid in real time with Lightning, you know, on the Lightning network. And that means that anyone, anywhere in the world, again, with a phone and inter- internet connection can start getting income. Maybe it's a, a second stream of income or whatever. And they're getting paid in Bitcoin and they're not having to you know, docks themselves to buy Bitcoin on a formal exchange. They're not putting themselves at risk by by doing so. They're actually earning in Bitcoin in a basically uh, private way. And this is the hope of, of the Bitcoin circular economy. It's that mm-hmm. as this continues to grow and grow, you know, the bottlenecks that are the, the exchanges Will become less and less significant over time because more and more people will be earning and spending bitcoin rather than simply acquiring it through these you know exchanges that could be uh subject to government you know control mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah this i, I mean this I, I i think this is totally right you know
0: so w- another thing that i'd like to explore is one of the things that many of us encounter when we're talking about Bitcoin to people and and we're pointing out all the different uh, problems in the world that it could help, you know, could potentially help resolve or at least help ameliorate is sometimes it's difficult to get that point across. Now, I, I have a feeling that in jurisdictions and in places where there's a greater necessity that the the benefits are, are more clear, but at, in your role as an activist, how do you go about communicating to people the significance of the money in the control of the political apparatus and government and military, like how do you how do you communicate to people just how relevant "quote unquote" the money is to you know the system that they're attempting to improve or fight against?
1: Thank you um, for that good question. It is interesting how little we learn about money in our education and even in in life, because a lot of people learn to understand money independently years later, probably after they finish school or something like that, after failing and wasting a lot of it and losing a lot of it. Um, in the beginning, I didn't want, I wasn't interested in Bitcoin at all. I wasn't looking at it at all. Why? Because as an activist and I think a lot of activists feel the same way, there is this discomfort to talk about money. We face so Mm. much attacks from the government trolls um, and the government itself that want to paint us as being interested people who are probably paid by a foreign enemy to destroy our image, that we are uncomfortable around money or anything that has to do with money. Because it doesn't, you don't want to look like somebody who is just wants to make money or who's interested in money. And for those who hear about Bitcoin for the first time, they only see it as a gamble thing where people who want to become lucky and rich, you just buy it and hope it goes up and they become rich. So I wasn't looking at it. I started looking at it when I realized that it was an alternative for us to raise money for our struggle and to send money to people uh, without the government being able to censor it. Because one thing we suffer from a lot is that the government actually arrests people for donating money to social movements in Togo or supporting an activist. They arrest people, they seize people's assets, they close their bank accounts. In fact, my father had his bank account shut down on so many occasions that he has not owned a bank account in many years. In more many decades, because when they are just arrest you, they'll shut down your bank account, and you will never receive the money back. Um. So you have countless of people who don't who don't have bank accounts uh, for that reason as well. And so at first for me it was a wow moment. We could really do that. So there's no way they can take this Bitcoin from us. Then I found platform that allow us to convert the Bitcoin to our mobile money. So it became something that could be an alternative for those who cannot spend the Bitcoin, but still need the money. Um, and I started educating about it. Then eventually, the more I started reading about it and understanding the philosophy of Bitcoin, because there's one thing about understanding the, 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 user, the usability and understanding the philosophy itself, When I understood Mm -hmm. the philosophy itself, after reading the white paper and and reading several blogs from Bitcoiners from all over the world, I realized that technically the struggle we have been fighting in Togo started with us wanting monetary independence. We We were fighting for independence. We got it. Then we were on the struggle for monetary independence when we lost that one and we have been in dictatorship ever since. So, technically, Bitcoin could actually give us a chance at winning this struggle for monetary independence. So, it was a wake up call for me. And at that moment, I wouldn't say that it shifted my activism, but it broadened my activism even more. And I realized that by becoming a stronger Bitcoin advocate and bringing more activists. Pan-Africanists that have been fighting for monetary independence in all of those 15 countries in Africa, we could eventually one day collectively obtain it. And we don't have to wait for those dictators to fall before we have our own currency. We can make Bitcoin our currency.
0: Amen. 100%. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I listened to you describe the the CAF and... And, you know, as you say, many, many great writers in the Bitcoin space have uh, elucidated this relationship uh, many times. But Mm -hmm. just to hear how real and how current it is, and it's so obvious that that mechanism is used as a measure of control and surreptitious theft, keeping Mm -hmm. the people of these countries impoverished in a relatively, you know, diminished position of power and influence, and it it keeps them effectively enslaved in Mm -hmm. in various ways. And it means that they can't do much. And it is that mechanism of the currency. As you said, you know, sure, everyone send us your gold and we'll give you these paper certificates and we'll devalue them whenever we want so we can buy your resources more cheaply. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, don't, don't worry, this is too complicated for you to understand. We're the, we're the smart, economic, monetary people. This is the, the best you know, thing for you, so just trust mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And now people have an ability to say, no thanks, no. that, no, that no, doesn't no. seem like a good deal for us. And here's oh, this no. thing that nobody can control. And as, as you said, I mean, th- this is one of the amazing things about Bitcoin, is like, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect and and hope for people like yourself that are on the ground attempting to... Mm-hmm bring greater fairness and democracy and freedom to these places. But it's such an uphill battle when something like Bitcoin gives every single person, it doesn't doesn't matter if you're super courageous like yourself or someone who basically doesn't want to be involved in any of these fights, you know, in any public way, but it gives them an ability to opt out, to say, I'm going to siphon whatever my financial resources are into this place where you can't touch them. And what that does is two things. It gives me greater freedom and options for, you know, my financial optionality, let's say in the world, but it also restricts you from benefiting from my wealth. And when Mm -hmm. that happens on mass, that means you can no longer pay 10,000 or a hundred thousand or a million soldiers to do your bidding because you no longer can steal from people to do so. Mm -hmm. And so over the Mm -hmm. course of time, if individuals, if every individual makes this decision, it means that the cost of tyranny is far higher and therefore tyranny is, is reduced. It's not able Mm -hmm. to be, uh, executed on people as easily because the, the, the funds to pay, you know, effectively the foot soldiers aren't, aren't there. And I, it's such an, it's such, it's so amazing that this is now available.
1: Right. That's right.
0: Do you think people are, are starting to realize that?
1: I think, I think a lot of people are starting to realize it. Um, especially in the past, in the past one year, I have been noticing a lot of shifts towards that. When you look at the Central African Republic that just announced Bitcoin as a legal tender, it's the very first country in Africa to do that. And coincidentally, that country uses the CFA and they were able to do that because their president doesn't get along with France at all. And the unfortunate part is that before he became president, they had two dictators that were probably some of the worst on the continent. The first one eventually decided that he didn't want to be be president anymore. He wanted to become an emperor. And he transformed the republic to an empire. Can you imagine that the president of France then attended the coronation of the self-proclaimed emperor? Simply because he had free really? access to their diamond, and this guy ruled the country for like thirty years
0: in blood. Wow. He
1: was probably one of the bloodiest dictators we've ever had in Africa. So eventually, he was so bloody that the people started revolting against him. And as the French were afraid that they would lose control, the French themselves toppled him and put another dictator there, who also ruled for twenty years, and the same thing happened. People started revolting, there were ethnic cleansings, security issues started rising. So eventually, that second dictator was toppled. The country fell in a horrible war where over 100,000 people were massacred. And this is something very recent. I mean, I'm talking about 2011, 2014, 2013. So this new president Tuadera came in with the goal of restoring peace in his country. But then he realized that his country cannot purchase weapons except the French government authorizes it. That is also part of the colonial pact. And there was no way for him to supply weapons to fight the terrorist groups and the rebel groups that have been massacring civilians for so many years. So he turned out to Russian mercenaries. and. Those Russian mercenaries for the past one year have been able to help him liberate part of the country today. And as a result, he's painted entirely now as a pro-Russian government. But this is not the president has as ever promoted Russian ideology. He's just someone mm. who needed resources to fight rebels. And the French prevented him from having access to the weapons. But they are now painting his decision to adopt Bitcoin as an act of rebellion against France and probably a pro-Russian decision. But it's actually ironic to think that Bitcoin will be pro-Russian. <laughs> Bitcoin is entirely <laughs> pro-freedom. The reason why this president did this and he said something and I quote, he said, Bitcoin is pure mathematics. If you understand mathematics, you will understand the, the value of the Bitcoin. This president is probably one of the most educated presidents on earth today. He has two PhDs in applied mathematics. So I actually find it wow. ironic that you have heads of state that can not barely count up to 100 without pausing, <laughs> questioning the intellectual ability of another one simply because he had to make a decision to safeguard the security of his country. Sometimes we have to give people a little more respect for their choices. But when Central African Republic announced that they would start using, accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment, the French monetary bank, which they nicknamed the Central African country's central bank, went after him. They sent Mm. him a letter summoning him, telling him he was violating the, uh, uh, um, the regulations of the monetary system and they decided to suspend CAR from the monetary system. And I actually found that to be interesting, ironic, but then very positive because presidents have been killed when they said they wanted out of the CFA. And now this one says, I'm going to use Bitcoin and they remove him willingly. So
0: they <laughs> <you laughs> get killed for
1: that. <laughs> <clears throat> and, I, and I was like, maybe if Sivanus Olimpio Togo's first president was alive when we have Bitcoin, he would still be alive today because he, he didn't have to say, I want out of the CFA. He just said, we are now accepting Bitcoin and they removed him just like that. They just dropped him. So it's actually, of course, in the short run, it will have some painful impact on the country's economy. But then in the Mm. long run, it's going to help them. And let me tell you why it's going to help them. Last year, the the government of Mali was ousted in a coup. That government was removed for one reason. They literally spent um, 10 years in power, unable to restore security in the country, and they have been facing severe terrorism from uh, 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 the Sahel. As a result... Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed and decimated and people started staging protests and there were over one million people protesting in the streets almost weekly. The government decided to send soldiers to shoot protesters and they killed dozens of them. Eventually, the army put an end to the bloodbath and removed the president from power. The French government insisted that they appoint a civilian. But when that civilian ended up continuing the same policies that led the first one to be ousted in the first place. The army came back and did a second coup. When they did the coup, the French suspended the army because the new putches is not favorable to the government of France. They don't get along. So what happened was that the Malians went back on the streets, millions of them, and saying, we want this military to be the leader of our political transition until we have new elections. So what did France do? France decided, through the support of that central African military system, to suspend Mali from the system. As a result, all of Mali's government's assets and money has been frozen for the past six months. All of it. Wow, And I am very ho- hopeful that Mali will become the next Central African Republic and will just say we are out of this. So for the past six months, Mali cannot have its money back. Um, they cannot do trade with any other country in the, in the system. They are not even authorizing flights to and out of Mali. Just because the people of Mali made a choice that the French government doesn't like. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin could give us not as only a solution to a monetary problem, but a solution to a long-end struggle against a military colonialism. And for me, the choice of President Tuadera in Central African Republic is really the way to go. And this is what I'm promoting now as an activist. And I hope more Francophone African countries will do the same. Will naturally say
0: yeah.
1: we are into Bitcoin, and then they will just expel them, and life goes on.
0: Yeah. Well, that I mean, like you say, even though there's likely to be some short term friction from such a transition, because you know so many of these countries have been under the thumb of the CFA and and you know the financial and debt and lending sort of apparatus of France and the global monetary system for so long that becoming detached from that is probably going to be challenging. Yeah. But as I think we'd both agree that on the other side of adopting and integrating Bitcoin into the economy and individuals in those places having the freedom to make that choice for themselves, on the other side of that is more freedom, more peace, more prosperity. And it's just, you know, I, I, I hear these stories and I think of the courage it must take for these leaders to, because, you know, let's be real. Most people don't see Bitcoin this way. They don't understand that this is what it is. Like you said before, they think it's just a way to speculate and make some money or it's some technology that they don't want, understand. And they don't think they even can understand. And for, and for these leaders to to kind of stake their, their reputation and, on such a move by saying hey we're gonna pretty much reject these outside financial forces and we're gonna go with something that they can't control but also we can't control but we think this is the fairer thing and the and the, the, the thing that's better for everyone um, that desires freedom and sovereignty we're gonna do it i mean it's a bless you it's a it's a tremendously um courageous move i think you know and also as you're explaining all this stuff I mean, I, I've known for a long time that there's so many things going on in so many areas of the world that just get completely ignored by, uh, quote unquote, mainstream Western media. And, you know, whether it's in South America or Africa, or you know, many parts of the world, there's just, there's a lot of un- <laughs> really horrible things happening that just don't get any attention. But when you, when I hear it in the detail that you're explaining it and and hearing that again, these you know, these countries that presume to, uh, almost be at the top of the, the virtue heap, right. That are, that are trying to act as though they're virtuous and developed and doing good for the world to know that they're, you know, they're still acting in this way in the areas of the world that get very little attention and therefore they can get away with it. It's just, it's, it's shocking. And one of the things, you know, I, I'd like to ask you this and, not that I want to detract from um, the attention of those places, but I think in in many parts of the world today, like I referred to before, people seem to be very complacent around the idea of freedom and what's required to uphold it. And I'm just curious over the you know, especially over the past two years, have and I'm sure your focus is mostly on on Togo and your work, but in in the degree of censorship and in the invasion of privacy and in the invasion and invasiveness and control of people's lives as a result of you know, lockdowns and other things associated with, with COVID. Um, do you look out at the developed world and, and, and what do you think when you, when you see all that? Because you've been confronted with yeah. how things can go really, really badly in in Togo and in other parts of Africa when certain fundamental principles are not upheld. And what is your take when you look out on the quote-unquote developed world and how things are unfolding in that domain today?
1: Um, In terms of the... uh, uh, Can you repeat the last part? Because I I think uh, you were breaking a little.
0: Sure. Sorry. Basically, just just looking at the world over the last two years, looking at politics, looking at the degree of censorship and and the attacks on free speech and the invasion and control on people's lives, what do you make of those things emerging in what was supposed to be, you know, the freest parts of the world.
1: Um, what I am noticing is that I've always said something, freedom and and democracy are, are not static. Um, they have to be nurtured or you lose them. And sometimes in the global North, there has been a tendency of people not realizing that their democracy was weakening and people were belittling some of the issues that were arising and didn't really do any effort and there was no intentionality in closing the loopholes. And unfortunately, we are now seeing a huge shrinking of the civic space, even in Western nations, where nobody would have imagined that in Canada, people protest and the government would the a state of emergency, where nobody would have probably imagined that in the United States, um, the Congress could be invaded
0: a um, um,
1: few weeks after election. day. Um, where you have many other countries where things are tightening and people's individual freedoms and civil rights are being violated by government. And this is not just a left-wing or right-wing thing. It's a general tendency regardless of, it's an, I would call it a general non-partisan, non-partisan issue. Mm-hmm. It, it needs and requires that citizens become alighted and understand that the role of the government in the first place is to secure their rights and their liberties, and this should come before any ideological standing. And it shouldn't be a matter of because I am on the left and it is a leftist government that is in power. When they, when they do it, they, they should get away with it. Or the other group deserves to be punished. Or when I'm in the right and then the, it's a right, right-wing governments that carry those abuses, we should let it go because they are doing it to definitely protect the ideologies and the values that I subscribe to. When you allow that to happen, you normalize the trend and you eventually arm the government against you as citizens. And for people like myself who have lived in a country where the government was literally against the people, you don't want to be in that situation where your government is no longer there to protect you and your government can no longer guarantee your rights and your liberties. So it, re- it really requires that the mindset shifts a little bit away from partisan politics to go back to the principles of democracy and republicanism that require states and governments to ensure that individual rights and civil rights remain untouchable no matter what the disagreements are within society. And no matter what the government is in power in the moment.
0: Well said, very well said. Um, we're coming up on on time shortly, but I want to circle back. I said I'd come back to the, the kind of chronology of your own story uh, a little while ago. And, you know, one of the things, I mean, we all encounter challenges in life and we have to figure out how to deal with all the different emotions that are associated with those challenges. And I think... I mean your life is very much an example of that but i think even people in in the western world there are large changes afoot and bitcoin almost seems certain to be a part of that and dealing with these changes and figuring out how to orient yourself properly to see through those changes and transitions is very important and you know you've ex- you've uh, detailed how your choices in life and your decision to pursue a life of activism has, you know, put you in a estranged or strained relationship with family members, I'm sure with friends, I'm sure you're much more cognizant of security and safety Mm -hmm. as a result of the things you say against, you know, the regimes that you're critical of. Um, So, like, how do you deal with all of those emotions, frustrations, fears, concerns, uh, strained relationships, like just, you know, explore that or shed some light on that for me. If, if you can.
1: Um, how do I deal with the frustration you say?
0: Yeah. I mean, not just the, the frustration of like the cause that you're fighting for, but how do you deal with the emotional load of all the different things that come with your choices in life? You know? So for example, I'm not sure if I cut out or not, but you've said that your choices have somewhat Estranged you from your family members and Mm -hmm. your friends, and you're also in a position where you you probably have to be very uh, careful of your safety and your security in certain places in the world, you know, in Togo Mm -hmm. and and potentially elsewhere. So, you know how how do you how do you deal with all that? I guess is what I'm asking. Is there anything in particular that you do to to manage Um, that?
1: You know. I think I I will say that it's a roller coaster. (laughs)
0: It's a roller
1: coaster because sometimes you feel like you have a plan and you got it and everything is going well. And then at some point you just feel so overwhelmed, so weak, um, and literally unable to function. And I will say that I am very grateful for one thing is that in the past couple years, and by past couple years, I mean, very, very recently, in the past two, three years, I have started taking my mental health more seriously because I was so used to dealing with trauma that I didn't even think it was a problem to be exposed to trauma. And I was constantly under pressure. And at some point in my life, I was in survival mode. There was a time... Um, about two years ago that I was moving from one country to one country almost every other week, nonstop, for like two years, out of fear of being assassinated because there were a lot of threats and there were some attempts. And it was a very unstable life, but I never really sat down to realize how detrimental this was being on my physical health and on my mental health until it got to a point where I couldn't function anymore. I felt like if I was in you know in a dark hole and I couldn't function and I couldn't respond. Then that was the moment that eventually I realized that there was a problem and I started developing a routine and creating some coping systems which I didn't used to have and started shifting things in such a way that activism was no longer my entire life because my entire life used to be activism and there's no way you can sustain yourself living constantly under threat and having to constantly be alerted. Even physically, it impacts your health. And when it impacts your health, it impacts your efficiency. So I started developing a a coping system and I started slowing down on certain things and recalibrating my activism because I got to a point where I didn't even have to prove anything anymore I will say in the first years of my activism, about 10 years ago, it was more about proving a lot, proving that as a girl, I could be an activist because there was a lot of sexism coming my way. Mm. And as a result of that sexism, I was always the one doing the most dangerous things that nobody else would do because I wanted to prove that I was a girl and I'm brave. As a matter of fact, when, we launched the Form As Go movement. I was the only known face of the movement <laughs> because I volunteered to be the face of the movement. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of youthfulness and, uh, uh, in it, but it was also because I was the only girl and I wanted to prove that girls could do it because I was receiving a lot of backlash for being a girl. And when I did, of course, I received even more backlashes Backlashes from people from both sides, not just from the side of the government, for people who, even though, you know, the funny thing is, we are all fighting for freedom, right? But when you're a woman, you, know, you don't just fight for freedom as a citizen, but you also have to fight for freedom as a human. Because mm. there's still a lot of misogyny and sexism in society that think the women's place is not in politics. Or And I I remember some of the criticisms that I used to receive in the beginning of my activism was, how can you, a girl, have the audacity to ask a man to leave power? So it wasn't about a citizen asking a dictator to go. It's about a woman asking a man to leave power. For them, it was like the most insulting and denigrating thing and the most audacious thing any woman could ever do. So... I was fighting two battles. I was fighting the democracy battle, and I was also fighting the women's rights battle. But then it came to a point where I realized that I don't have to prove that I belong anymore. I, I, I have, I have done far more than that, and I have earned the respect and the consideration and the leadership that I became among the youth of my generation. Probably the most popular activist and the most Hopefully, I I perceive it as one of the most respected activists the country has ever had. And it's something to be proud of, but it's something to be extremely grateful for. Um, So I realize now that my job as an activist is to enable more Farida to come and to build a Mm. support system to ensure that we have more Farida organizing, agitating, demanding accountability, and we have the resources in place to support those who are doing it so that they don't face or end up in the same situation as I have ended up in while I was in exile. So we have gotten to the point where we are better equipped to help people when their life is in danger, when they need to escape, when they need to relocate, when they're in prison, we are still struggling to get them out. We haven't succeeded yet, but still we have a better support system than we used to. And my entire job now is to continue, of course, raising awareness about Togo and putting the regime on the map because what has helped them stay in power for so long is the fact that it's a very small country, lost somewhere Nobody in knows. West Africa. Nobody knows. And they speak French. Nobody reads our news. It's all in France. Um, so... I, want to, I wanted to put the country on the global map, and I'm grateful that I have given the audience to be doing that for the past years, but to use that avenue to raise the support, to train more activists, to provide them with resources, to equip them so that when we have a chance again to get on the streets like we did in 2017 and 18, we don't fail again. And I did mention, at the beginning of our protest in 2017, where hundreds of thousands of Togolese managed to come outside and to say they want to change and we're chanting for Moscow, I said, this could be a trial and failure thing. Because when babies start walking, they, they, they start and they fall and they start and they fall. Failure shouldn't stop us. It should only make us realize that we need more energy and resources than what we had at the first attempt. So because that attempt didn't work, my team and my colleagues and I have done the work of evaluating everything that went wrong. And now we are working on resourcing those things so that the next attempt could be maybe the right one. And if not, we keep going until we end up bringing an end to this dictatorship.
0: And so, what is your status? And we'll, we'll basically close with this one. But what is your status in Togo today? Uh, like, are you able to be in the country? You're able to do your work. Like, just put a put a, a bow on this chronology of, of Farida's story.
1: To make to make to make a joke out of this, which is a truth actually. I don't even fly over Togo, <laughs> like. When I'm traveling and I'm buying a ticket, I check the itinerary to make sure my flight doesn't even fly over Togo. <laughs> so
0: So every, everything you're doing today is by distance necessarily because yes. it's too risky for you to be in the country, right?
1: Completely. There are people mm-hmm. in prison today who have done far less than what I did. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even imagine what my case would be. And... I was, among one of, among, I was among the few groups of people that high-ranking government officials, and by that I mean Minister of Security openly said, we dare you to set a foot in this country and we will show you. So it's wow. not just that I'm assuming something will happen. I know they, they are waiting to get me. And mm. I'm hoping that they don't succeed. <sighs>
0: <laughs> me too <laughs> me too um frida this has been not only eye-opening but tremendously inspiring and i'm inspired by so much of this story but in particular your courage and you were saying uh, about the people that you're now trying to cultivate i i can't i can imagine that the courage and the conviction that you've displayed over the last decade plus is going to be a very, have a very powerful and is probably having a very powerful impact on the people that um, feel similarly, but perhaps didn't have, you know, prior to seeing your example, the courage or even the audacity to believe that things could be different and better. And uh, I'm sure your example is causing that to change and inspiring an entire generation, you know, so thank you and, uh, you know, grateful for your work in the cause for freedom in togo which you know effectively is the cause of freedom for humanity you know they're they're basically one and the same and and hopefully more and more people come on board with that and realize the importance of it and we can all share in it um thank you is there so anything much, that you wanted I mean, to I anything else you wanted to been, get off your uh, chest or direct people to really, before really we shut this down
1: have this conversation with you today thank you so much
0: I think your volume just uh, maybe what? went down a bunch, Frida. I didn't hear the last little bit. Can
1: you can you hear me now? Hello.
0: Yeah, you're back. You're back.
1: Okay. <laughs> so I was saying, thank you so much.
0: Um, yeah, you're back. So di- <laughs> sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure what's happening. It seems the. I mean, we've had good internet until now. And it's giving me issues.
0: Yeah, just, this is the last, the last moment. So, so basically, <laughs> uh, you know, I was just giving you an opportunity to final comments or if you wanted to direct people to your work or any, any uh, you know, websites or stuff like that to follow what you're doing or support in any way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The floor is yours. Um,
1: yes, um, helping us raise awareness, helping us contact officials that could help us put pressure on Togo, um, supporting us. In creating the infrastructure we need to continue training more Togolese people, my organization, the Togolese Civil League, um, has initiated an academy called the Gaye Academy. And we have trained a group of young Togolese on, on, on Bitcoin. And they are now setting people up on Bitcoin. They are setting merchants, they are setting uh, teaching c- citizens. We organize classes so people can learn how to use Bitcoin. And we really want to grow this program as much as possible. So if there's any way you could help us, support us with infrastructure, educational materials, or anything else, we will be very happy for it. Um, We feel like when the majority of the Togolese themselves will have adopted the Bitcoin, it will just become a natural thing. We wouldn't even need to wait for the government to make the decision for us. Um, And we want to lead that. So... Um, the Egeye Academy, Egaye in our local mm. language means new money. Ega is money and Yeye is new. And there is, there's a lot of connotation to it because in our culture, when people are having weddings and ceremonies, you throw money at them and you only throw them new money because it looks shiny. The coins are shining and the, and the bills are very fresh. Um, so we feel like Bitcoin is, is fresh money, it's new money, it's pure money, and we want people to have the same uh, <laughs> approach, positive approach that they have to shining coins when they are looking at Bitcoin and understand that this is money they can use, and this is money that can provide solutions to many of the problems they are facing. So if you have any ability to support us in this venture, we'll be more than happy to uh, receive it and we'll really appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll get links for all that stuff from you after the show and I'll put it in the show notes so people can follow up if they'd like to. Uh, Farida, thank you so much again. It was great to have this conversation and also wonderful to meet and spend time with you a couple of weeks ago. And I look forward to the next opportunity we get to do that again.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really an honor for me to, to be on this show today. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Farida. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Farida. I found her story, as well as her ongoing efforts to bring freedom to her people, incredibly inspiring. While it's sobering to realize how few options many people have to combat restrictions that have been unfairly imposed on them, it's also incredibly uplifting to hear how Bitcoin is helping to level the playing field. To learn more about Farida, contribute to her work, or get in touch, visit naborema.com and follow her on Twitter at Farida underscore N. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.